Why don't you take your Bibles this morning and once again you can open them up to Mark chapter 1, still chapter 1. I feel like we've covered so much ground already, but it's really just beginning here in Mark. The first chapter gets us up to speed on things and, and fast. Mark chapter 1 is like the ministry of Jesus from 0 to 60 in about 6 seconds. We start off with the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. And John's ministry culminates in the baptism of the Messiah himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is, you could say, the inauguration point of his ministry. And immediately after this, as a first order of business, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here Jesus is tested, he is proven, and he begins to conquer and overcome the kingdom of darkness. In Jesus, the kingdom is at hand. After his temptation, Jesus ministers in the south for some time, just just like John, making disciples, preaching. But just as almost just as quickly as John enters the scene, John exits the scene. He is arrested, and consequently, Jesus moves his ministry from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north. And upon arriving in Galilee, Jesus first decides to go fishing at the Sea of Galilee, fishing for disciples. That is, he calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him full-time, to leave behind the fishing world and to become fishers of men. This is where we left off last week, and this morning we come to find out what happens next. We've just been introduced to Jesus. We're just starting to see who he is and what he does. He just starts calling disciples, and we wonder, what's his ministry going to be like? If you're reading for the, this for the first time, what's going to happen next? What is his ministry going to be characterized by? Will Jesus be exclusively a preacher and a baptizer like, like John? Will he take his disciples out into the wilderness and just live in seclusion like some did? Or will he take them down to Jerusalem and become a part of the establishment? In the passage we have before us today, we come to see just what to expect from the ministry of Jesus. And it's not like anything the people had ever seen before. This all happens, you could say, day one, day two of Christ's Galilean ministry. And a lot happens on these couple of days. We go from the shore of Galilee to the synagogue of Capernaum. And right away we learn something essential about Jesus and who he is, namely, his authority. We come to see his authority. Jesus comes with this supreme, ultimate, cosmic authority. And his entire ministry will be a display of his authority. And Mark shows us this just just right out of the gates. As you may recall, Jesus just called these four fishermen, telling them to follow me, And this really was an audacious request. Rabbis, even prophets, never told anyone, follow me. They always said, follow God. So so who is this Jesus who who thinks he can actually tell people to follow him as if he is the way? And we're about to see just who this Jesus is. And, And quickly we learn he has the authority to back up such a life-changing call like follow me. 
Now, as we get going, though, I want us to stop and think just for a moment about authority in general. Just, just what is authority? The concept of authority is the right or the power to have others do what you want them to do. You have the ability to direct their actions and also the power to enforce a, a punishment, a penalty for failure. But there are different types of authority a person can possess, different sources of authority. For instance, there's the authority of competence. This is where you listen to a person because he or she knows what they're talking about. They're an expert in their field. They're learned. They've proven they can handle the job. And imagine you're a heart surgeon, and this is your first heart surgery. And presiding over you is the head surgeon, a doctor who has performed hundreds of heart surgeries with 100% success. Seems like he knows everything about heart surgery. And so when this head surgeon tells you what to do in the surgery, are you going to listen to him? Of course you are. This person knows what they're talking about. They're, they're competent far more than you are. If you don't listen, it can have disastrous consequences. Jesus has, of course, the authority of competence. He was fully able, fully competent to lead. He had no shortage of spiritual expertise, but this was not the primary source of Christ's authority. There's also the authority of charisma. Some people, they're just charming, energetic, passionate. They just have a charismatic personality, and you find yourself just wanting to follow them. They may be otherwise unqualified to lead. They may have nothing otherwise exceptional about them, but there's just something there. They're, they're charismatic. You want to follow. Usually, gurus and, and cult leaders have this type of authority, they're able to make people follow them by just moving speeches and clever rhetoric and just personality. Now, Jesus certainly had this authority. He was a powerful speaker. He delivered moving sermons. He was a person people just found themselves wanting to follow after, just to hear what he would say next. But again, this was not Jesus' primary source of authority. You also have the authority of character. Unlike charisma, this is more describing a person's actual character. They possess integrity, honesty, morality. They're a good person. Someone can be as charismatic as ever, but if you know they're a rotten person, hopefully you, you won't follow them. It's like a, re, a leader's credit rating. Are they sterling? Are they upright, above reproach? Someone you can trust. Someone you can follow because you know they're going to point you in the right direction. And Jesus most definitely had the authority of character. In fact, he had perfect character being the sinless, righteous Son of God. And here, very much of Christ's authority was rightly derived from the display of his perfect character. That's close to the top of the list, but still... There's another type of authority that best describes Jesus. And this would be the authority of position. The authority of position. This is where a person's status alone gives them the right to tell you what to do. The power 
to, to tell you how to live. It's like, think of your boss at work. Does your boss have authority over you in the workplace? Yeah. They can tell you to do anything and everything related to the job, and, and you pretty much have to do it. Why? I mean, does your boss have the authority of competence? Not always. I think we've all maybe encountered one of those bosses who is not very competent. He or she has no idea what they're doing. They only got the job because they knew someone. What about charisma? Does your boss carry the authority of, of charisma? Again, I'd say not always. Oftentimes bosses are dull and boring people. Many times they fail to inspire people to follow, but you still follow. What about character? Does your boss possess the authority of character? They're just so upright, you just want to follow them. I think we've all heard of or maybe experienced that truly wicked boss, the evil boss, the person willing to lie manipulate, deceive, to get their own way, to further their agenda. But even still, you follow, you listen, and you obey. So where is your boss getting this authority? It is simply the authority of position. They are above you in position, in the workplace at least. And that's it, that's all they need. Their status alone, just that title, boss. That's all they need. And they have total authority over you. They have the right and the power to tell you what to do. And if you don't, they have the authority to enforce consequences. And the same goes for Jesus. He does have authority based on his competence, charisma, and character. But his ultimate authority is derived simply from his position. It's just based on who he is. I mean, just think, he, he claims the right and the ability to tell everyone, all of humanity, what to do and how to live. I mean, he's really, he assumes for himself this, this insane level of authority. We even find Jesus speaking not just from God, but for God. I mean, who can do that? Where does he get this authority? And the answer is in his position. He has this authority because of who he is. And who is he? He's one who can speak for the Father because he's the Son. He's one who can speak with the divine authority because he's divine. Jesus has supreme authority over the entire universe. So yeah, he has the right to tell everyone what to do, how to live, how to be saved. It doesn't mean all people will listen to him. Some will rebel against his authority. But he also has the authority to enforce consequences. Either way, he is supreme. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says this, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've, made, uh, you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He's at the top of the list. 
this supreme authority essential to Christ's person and work. His authority was just previewed in his call of the four fishermen. This is just this piercing, authoritative call, follow me. And now as we continue on on day one and day two of his Galilean ministry, we see his authority further on display. He's going to show the world his supreme authority. The authority he possesses just by nature of his nature. And when it starts, it doesn't stop. When Jesus begins this display of who he is and his power and his authority, it doesn't stop for the rest of his ministry. When all is said and done, when when the dust settles, you realize that this person, this Jesus, he has authority over every atom in the universe, over every planet and star, every angel and demon, and certainly over every human being that has ever lived. And as you realize this, if you find yourself still rejecting him and his word, at the very least, you stand very self-condemned. Now, this is enough on authority in general. Let's see his authority in action now. As soon as Simon and Peter, and, or rather Simon and Andrew, James and John, drop their nets, clean the sand off their feet, put their sandals on and get in line with Jesus, they're off into town. They're heading in the nearby town, and we pick things up this week in verse 21. We're going to be looking at today Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. But we'll read as we go along. To begin, just look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 21. After calling the four, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 21 transitions us to a new setting. We move from the shore of Galilee to the the synagogue of Capernaum. And Capernaum was a town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's likely this is where Jesus called the four fishermen to begin with because this is where they lived. Capernaum was their home. The passage we have next week, we actually enter the home of Peter and Andrew and Peter's wife and Peter's mother-in-law. And Jesus resides there. Now, Peter and his brother Andrew, they used to live in Bethsaida, which is a town actually just two miles to the east, very close. But recently they moved to Capernaum because most likely it's, it's a better fishing town. Capernaum was located next to the main trade route between the Mediterranean coastal plain and Damascus. And it really was an industrious city. Even back then, it had this 2,000-foot-long, 8-foot-wide seawall and several piers that stretched out 100 feet into sea. It's pretty remarkable for back then. The population consisted mostly of Jews who were fishermen, merchants, farmers, artisans, a few tax collectors, like a guy named Matthew, who we'll meet later. But it was a key fishing town. It was next to a key trade route. It was surrounded by fertile farming land. So Capernaum really was the most prosperous or affluent town in the region. This was a good place to be. 
The city was mostly full of Jews, but it also housed a small Roman garrison. And the Romans, they lived in a better part of town. They had better living quarters. They had some of the luxuries that Roman culture afforded, like the Roman baths. Pretty luxurious back then, like your spa treatment. The Roman baths had three different rooms with three different heatings for this, like an ancient spa treatment. There was the, the caldarium, which was like your spa room, your, your steam room. There was the tepidarium, you would move from the hot to the lukewarm. And then the frigidarium, which was ice cold, they imported snow for these cold baths. It's really clear the Romans lived a lot differently than the Jews. But in Capernaum, they, were, they had good relations The Romans and the Jews got along. And Luke chapter 7 actually tells us that in this city, there was a very rich Roman centurion. He actually loved the Jewish people. He highly regarded the Jews, and he built for them their synagogue. This is the synagogue that Jesus will shortly be entering. But one more note on Capernaum, something important for you to know. Not only was it the home of the four main disciples, but after this point, Capernaum becomes the home of Jesus. This becomes his new home base, the new center of operations for his ministry, Capernaum. You may remember how he was rejected from his hometown of Nazareth. And after that, he chose instead Capernaum as the place to call home in between trips. He would spend most of his time traveling and preaching because that's what he came to do. But when it was time to take a rest, he would return to Capernaum. Capernaum was a good choice for Jesus. It was centrally located and was away from the real Roman authorities. Not the centurions, but the real authorities. I mean, just down the lake, just seven miles south on the lake was a city called Tiberias. And that's the city which... Herod Antipas made his capital. And just so you know, that's the same Herod who just had John the Baptist arrested and later would have John the Baptist killed. So by residing in Capernaum, Jesus could avoid a confrontation with the Roman authorities until, of course, the appointed time had come. So now, anyway, we're in the city of Capernaum, and it's on the Sabbath. And most of you know that for Jews... Sabbath was their holy day, day of rest, a day when no work was to be done. It was a day of worship. From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, they were to worship the Lord and do no work. And as was their custom on the Sabbath, they would make their way to the local synagogue and hear the Torah read. And this is where we see Jesus go. They went into Capernaum, verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, this is not the last time we'll encounter Christ in a synagogue. So let's just, for the time being, ask what exactly is or was a synagogue? You remember if you read the book of Acts, you see Paul all the time as he's going off on these missionary journeys, preaching the gospel. Every time he enters a new city, where's his first stop? It's the local Jewish synagogue. So, so what exactly is this, this place, this synagogue? Well, the synagogue was not like the temple. Totally different. There's only one temple. It was in Jerusalem. That's where the priests 
lived and resided and ministered. That's where they still had animal sacrifices. And that's where every year the Jews would make a pilgrimage to the temple for a feast like the Passover. The temple was a holy ground, a place of reverence and worship. At least that's what it was supposed to be. But the synagogue was not like this. Not like this. There were not many temples. Rather, they basically were like assembly halls or public auditoriums. Just think of your local rec center. Kind of like a YMCA without the gym and the swimming pool. They were just meeting areas. It was their central meeting place, and the building was multifunction. On Sabbath, it was a place where they would hear Torah read and taught. Throughout the week, it was a schoolhouse, and when the occasion arose, it was a courthouse. Any city could have a synagogue, providing there were at least 10 Jewish males, 13 years or older, living in the city. And each Sabbath had a ruler who had the very clever title, ruler of the synagogue. That was his title. And the ruler was not like the modern pastor. He was not a preacher. He was not a teacher. He was the ruler. More like an administrator, a a librarian, a, a worship leader, even the custodian. And on the Sabbath, the reading and the teaching of the Torah was open to anyone in the congregation whom the ruler deemed qualified. Anyone selected by the ruler could stand up, read from the Jewish Old Testament, and then proceed to teach. Which gets me thinking, I wonder what it would be like if we did that today. And what if you show up to church next Sunday, I get up here, and instead of preaching, I just tell one of you, you know, why don't you come up here, read this passage, and just give us a little 30-minute mini-sermon. Would you like if we did that next Sunday? Everyone, everyone okay with that? It's definitely a different time. Anyway, on, on the Sabbath, after gaining approval, Jesus would have stood up. He would have read either from the law or the prophets. Then he would have sat back down from the front and proceeded to teach. And this is where we see it. From here on out, the moment he opens his mouth, we see his authority on display. This is where we want to go. Let's begin now to observe the supreme authority of Jesus on display. First, I want you to note his authority in word. First, his authority in word. And look at verse 22. As he began to teach, verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. As is often the case, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said. What's the content of his teaching that afternoon? We don't know. This is the reason why Mark is the shortest gospel, because he often just leaves out the long sermons of Jesus. Jesus obviously said more than all of the Gospels tell us, but at this juncture, Mark is more concerned with telling us how the people responded to his teaching and how did they respond. It says the people were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. This word for amazed means astonished, overwhelmed, set back. It's like, it's like a blow to the stomach. It just kind of knocks you back. 
It's like being blind your entire life and then gaining your sight. And just imagine as you open your eyes for the first time that the wonder, just the astonishment, that the sense of awe. And that's what was happening here. These people were spiritually blind and the light is finally dawning on them and it just amazes them. It shocks them. For years, these Jews in Capernaum were spiritually starved. They were completely malnourished when it came to the teaching and and the true understanding of God's word. And sadly, this still happens today. I mean, how many churches out there are there which which feed their congregations a, a steady preaching diet of cotton candy, chocolate, and sugar? And it sounds appealing, but after a while you realize there's no nourishment here and it, you start to get sick. But the Word of God is not like that. It's exciting, but it also nourishes you. And Jesus here, as he speaks the true Word of God, it's like he's, he's hitting the people with a spiritual feast and it's, it's just more than they can even take. It's often been found that when someone is in starvation mode, they can't take normal food right away. You know, I always hear that story about someone who gets lost in the woods for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks, and they're in starvation mode. If you find that person, you can't just give them a feast; their body will reject it. They won't—they won't keep it down. It's too much of a shock to their system at first, and that's what's happening here. Jesus frequently spoke in such a way that it just—it shocked the people. It was just like well, overload. It was too much truth, and they hadn't been used to it, and so it shocks them. And what made his teaching so amazing was that it carried this authority, this, this new authority, this great authority. They'd not heard this before. Jesus actually spoke like he knew what he was talking about. He actually spoke like what he was saying was true. Like this is truth. He spoke like he was talking not just, not just from God, but for God. I want you to do this. You keep your finger in Mark and just turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Let's turn backwards to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 records the very famous Sermon on the Mount. This sermon did not take place very long after Christ here in Capernaum. And it did not take place very far away from Christ here in Capernaum. But what makes this sermon so special is verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Matthew. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. That's it right there. What makes it so special is that this all comes just straight from the mouth of Jesus. Meaning, in this sermon, we don't find Jesus just quoting other rabbis, which is all they ever did. We don't even find him reading a bunch of the Old Testament. Rather, he's giving this new direct truth. This is a new teaching with authority, a divine authority behind it. Look down at verse 27 of chapter 5. He does this all the time. It's just one example, but, but look, at, look at what he does. He quotes the Old Testament, yeah, but then he adds his own 
authoritative teaching to it. I mean, who can do that? Verse 27, just one example. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait, wait a second. Where does it say that? Where does it say that in the Old Testament? First part, yeah, okay, no problem. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But that second part, that, that's not there directly. It's almost as if he's adding or expound, expounding upon truth from the Bible, and, and he is. And he is. He does it a lot. Jesus never says, I think. Never. He never says, well, I think this is what this says. Or, you know, I think this is what this means here, like we do. He never says that. He just speaks as if what he is saying is the truth. This is the authoritative divine truth. And you read this whole sermon, you will feel the impact. And the people who heard it the first time they felt that same shock wave. And look at the very end of it. Go to Matthew chapter 7 and look at verse 28 and 29. This is the, the response of the people. Matthew 7 verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Very similar. And as you turn back to Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, the people in Capernaum, they also picked up on this same contrast between Jesus and the scribes. You know, I wonder if there were any scribes in attendance that day, that Saturday afternoon as Jesus taught in the synagogue. Did they start to feel all the eyes in the room, look at them. They start to, to sweat a little bit as Jesus was teaching with this authority. Did they, did they squirm in their seats? Did they feel the heat? It's really no wonder why that the scribes later would turn on Jesus because he makes them look bad. Only they were bad, so it's appropriate. But speaking of the scribes here, who were they? Who are these scribes? Well, the scribes were the experts of the Jewish law. And not everyone could read or write. And so scribes were needed to transmit and interpret and teach the people God's will. What does, what does God's will say? What does God's word say? Scribes filled that role. And the scribes, they basically were the gateway, the gatekeepers of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. They basically had a monopoly on what God's word said and then what it really meant. They became the authority on the truth. And you can tell, you know, that quickly turned, you know, went right to their head and became a source of power over the people. They became like the rulers of the people because you had to go through them to find out what was God's real will. Even if you could read the Torah yourself, you couldn't interpret it like the scribes, they were the authority over the people and they, they used that authority to assert themselves and their power over the people through the Bible. 
The scribes were like the PhD professors of their time, plus civil lawyers, plus rulers. The priests were different. Down in Jerusalem, the priests, they had this kind of regal authority among the people. But over time, this group called the scribes, they started to rise in authority because they were everywhere. The priests, I mean, you never talk to a priest. They're down in Jerusalem. But there's scribes in every city. They were oftentimes the rulers of the synagogue. They were everywhere. And some even came to be regarded as more authoritative than the high priest. And that's like the number one guy. When a scribe passed by on the street, common people would move aside. When a scribe entered a synagogue, common people would stand up and he would get the best seat. You may be thinking to yourself already, these scribes sound, sound like that group called the Pharisees. And for thinking that, you're, you're right. Most of the scribes were Pharisees. And we will come to learn a lot about this group called the Pharisees as time goes on. However, the, the great authority these scribes assumed for themselves was false. And their teaching reflected that. Whereas a lot of the preaching today is just superficial, it's like cotton candy, the the teaching of the scribes was like burnt toast. There's just nothing there. Just dry, pointless. They did not focus on the essential biblical truths, but on the petty aspects of the law, most, most of which were just made up. Their teaching was just a regurgitation of rules and regulations, and all it did was burden the people. It's like hanging a weight around their neck. And you can probably already see the contrast with Jesus. Their their authority was was phony. Their authority was man-made. The best they could do was quote another scribe. And that's all they did to, to prove and assert their authority. But Jesus shows up And he derives his authority from himself and his Father in heaven. He spoke the very words of God. And it's this contrast between Jesus and the scribes that back then and even today highlights the authority of Jesus. When he speaks, you listen. Because his words have life in them. They've got teeth to them. That there's power in these words here that's unlike anyone else. Anyone, back then, even today. It's not just paper and ink that we're, we're dealing with here. But as Peter would later say, these are the words of eternal life. And do, you, do you see that? Do you believe that? These are the words of eternal life. There's a different power in his words. Is it any wonder that Jesus himself was called the Word, the divine Logos, the Word of God. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, just from when he first opens his mouth, we see nothing other than his supreme authority in Word on display. And this is something we will not stop seeing in Mark. The first, recognize Christ's Supreme authority in word. His supreme authority in word. 
However, when Jesus speaks, those who oppose him can't keep silent. As Jesus teaches, a nearby demon cries out and interrupts him. But this just gives Jesus an occasion to display now his authority in deed. Secondly, now I want you to observe his authority in deed. His authority in deed. Look at back in Mark chapter 1, verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Today there's been a real resurgence in the belief of the supernatural. But it's all the fake stuff, like vampires and werewolves and zombies and all that stuff. I imagine most people today would would still assent to the reality of demons, but not in the biblical sense. I mean, we're not talking about ghouls or goblins or ghosts. Demons in the Bible are very real spiritual beings, and they're called angels. Only demons are fallen angels, angels who have rebelled against God, and they're given over entirely now to opposing God. And it is these fallen angels that we call demons. That's it. And this is not our first encounter with them in Mark. Jesus himself already encountered the prince of demons, the greatest of the fallen angels, Satan. And that temptation and consequent victory over Satan in the wilderness was more significant than you may realize. Because not only was Jesus being tested and proved, but he was asserting his dominion over the kingdom of Satan in that encounter. That that was the beginning. Jesus comes to earth not only to pay for sin, yes, of course, but also, like Hebrews 2.14 says, to render powerless him who holds the power over death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2.14. Christ's ministry was not just teaching, but it was, it was a true, it was a literal spiritual warfare. The Genesis 3.15 promised that the serpent would strike the seed on the heel would be fulfilled on the cross. But the counter promise that the seed would strike the serpent on the head, it's beginning. It is now beginning. The kingdom of God comes with Jesus and it is here to conquer and displace the kingdom of Satan. Mark refers to this demon as an unclean spirit, which is a very good description because this demon was a spirit being and in the Jewish sense of the word, unclean. Just purely defiled everything that is opposed to God. Now we're going to save a closer look into this world of fallen angels for the future in Mark. For now, the focus is really just on how this demon-possessed man reacts to Jesus. So look again at verse 24. He says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus 
of Nazareth. I, I know who you are. Or rather, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We see another contrast now in regards to how people respond to Jesus. The crowds, when they heard him teach, they were amazed. But when the demon heard him teach, he was terrified because he knew what this meant. This was for him the beginning of the end. When you read the Gospels, it really was like the demons were having a convention in Palestine during the life of Jesus. Because there is this huge spike of demonic activity surrounding Jesus. And that's not by accident. They gather on purpose to oppose the word and the works of God during that time. But whenever they encounter Jesus himself, they know that they have met their demise. It's like turning on a light in a dark basement. All the the cockroaches just flee away. Or lifting a large stone, all the insects just run for cover. The demons, they always recoil at the sight and the sound of Jesus. And fear is always their response because they know. They know what his coming means. And it's their judgment. This demon cries out, have you come to destroy us? And one day the answer to that question will be yes. Jesus himself will personally judge all of the fallen angels, and there's no mercy for them. There's only judgment waiting them. They fear him because they know what his coming means, and they know who he is. You'll notice that even though the crowds are amazed, they do not recognize the true identity of Jesus. But the demon knows right away who he is. The demon-possessed man knew that this was Jesus of Nazareth, But also, he was none other than the Holy One of God. This is a clear messianic title. Peter himself will use this title to confess Jesus as the Christ. It is a messianic and divine title, and the demons are never mistaken, never, as to who Jesus really is. They know he's not just some angel. He is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And this leads to another contrast, just standing on other sides of this room. You have Jesus, who is the Holy One of God. He is empowered, you could even say possessed, by the Holy Spirit. And on the other side of this room stands this tormented man, unclean, unholy, possessed by an unholy, an unclean spirit. This possessed man cries out. You can just imagine what's going through the minds of the people in the synagogue. I mean, do they know this man? Have they dealt with him before? Do they just tolerate his presence? Is he a troublemaker? And either way, they just heard Jesus teach this amazing truth. They're probably wondering, what's going to happen next? How is Jesus going to deal with this man? How is he going to respond? And how does Jesus respond? And look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And notice how sudden this response is. Jesus not, is not a witch doctor. He's not a charlatan or a magician. He needs no special incantation here, no magic spell. 
No holy water or candles were used. He doesn't even touch the person. He just just speaks in just a few words, and it's done. Jesus commands this demon to be silent. Because although the demon has confessed the true identity of Jesus, this is not the free advertising Christ is looking for. His words and his works will testify of who he is. The demons can just be quiet. And with a sudden rebuke, the demon is defeated. One last seizure, a last act of rebellion, he throws the man down and comes out. Luke tells us in his version that this man was unhurt. And the implication is that afterward, he was restored to his right mind. But what we really see here is a demonstration. It's a demonstration of the authority of Jesus, his authority in deed, which really also goes back to his authority in word, because how did he do this deed? Just a word. With just a word. The point is that no force can stand in the way of Christ's supreme authority. He comes and he asserts himself over the greatest authorities of the day, and he prevails. I mean, look, the scribes, they were the spiritual authorities of the day. And Jesus completely crushes them in word. And then the demons, they were regarded as the top supernatural authorities of the day. And Jesus defeats them indeed. By word and by deed, who, who is this? Who possesses this level of authority? To us, there's no mystery. We know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But what's left to see is how do the people respond? How do these people respond? And this leads us now, lastly, to the response. Lastly, the response. And look at verse 27. Hearing and seeing all this, verse 27, they were amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. How do the people respond? They're amazed and rightly so. They recognize his authority, and rightly so. They see the demand for complete obedience to him, and rightly so. The people understood Jesus had supreme authority, and that his words demanded complete obedience, and that's a good thing. Okay, so far so good, but what next? How do they respond next? Well, for a little while, Jesus was their guy. They loved him. They followed him, they chased after him, they brought their sick to him, and he healed them all. He was their local superstar. And they couldn't stay away. They wanted to hear more, they wanted to be healed, and who wouldn't? I mean, can you blame them? I mean, who wouldn't? But here's the real question, the real question. When all all the excitement settles down, all of your loved ones have been healed by Jesus Did they obey Jesus? Did they listen to his word? Did they actually heed all of his teaching? 
And did they in turn submit to his authority? And the answer for most of the people in this city, Capernaum, is no. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 11. Later in ministry, Jesus condemns his new hometown. And what does he say? Matthew 11, just listen along. He says in verse 20, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Verse 23, he says, And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's how they responded. In the end, they rejected. And as you see this passage in Mark, you are meant to stop and ask, how do you respond to the authority of Jesus? Are you amazed? I hope you are. You should be. There's plenty of more, plenty more amazing things to come. Do you recognize his authority? I hope you do. You should. And again, his authority will be on display from here on out. But here's the kicker. Do you then obey? Do you follow? Do you submit to his authority? Or do you share in the condemnation of Capernaum? Some people, they think they've got this perfect excuse for not listening to the Son. They say, well, look, those people in Capernaum, I mean, they saw the miracles with their eyes. If I saw it with my eyes, yeah, of course I would believe and obey and all that. But I tell you, you have less of an excuse than them because you have the more sure word in your hand. You have the whole testimony, all of it. You have more than they had. As we progress through Mark, you are going to, I guarantee it, you're going to find yourself wondering, saying to yourself, how can the crowds, how can they hear this teaching? How can they see all these miracles and still not believe? How can they still not obey and follow Jesus? But wait a second. You need to realize this still happens today. And it may even be happening in you. Because we still hear Jesus teach in the word with authority. And we still see Jesus do all those miracles in the word with authority. Yeah, how many people still do not follow, do not obey, do not believe? Through the word, Jesus still speaks and still works Are you amazed? Do you recognize? Then do you you follow? Do you obey, trust, and obey? For those who do not know this, that there is no excuse to give on the final day. You have nothing. There is no excuse you can give. You have heard and you have seen in word and in deed 
Christ's supreme authority. He has the right to tell you what to do. And he calls you, though, to repent and to believe, to turn from your sins, to give your life to him, to follow him. He has the authority to forgive you of all of your sins. Do you realize that? To save you. But if you reject, he also has the authority to judge you forever. But for those who are in Christ, you do follow him. We praise God for that. But are there areas in your life where you're holding out? You're holding out. Are there ways in which you don't really follow and submit to his authority? Just think of all the hard things Jesus calls us to do in life with authority. I'll give you some examples just from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls you to be truthful always. But you think, well, yeah, but that's, that's going to get me into trouble sometimes. It would really be so much easier if I could just, just tell this little white lie here and just, yeah, okay, disobey God a little bit, but it's, it's so much easier. He calls you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But you think, uh, really? I really don't want to love my enemies. I, I want to hate them. He calls you to never fall into anger with others. And when someone offends you, to first take the log out of your own eye. But you think, oh, but they deserve my wrath. They deserve my anger and they need to pay. He calls you not to store up treasure on earth, not to serve money. But you think, but, you know, I, I, I love money and I love my possessions. I mean, does this, does this mean I have to give them up? We could go on, but the point is simple. Jesus has supreme authority and he demands total obedience. Not 90% of your life obedience, not 99% of your life obedience. Total obedience. It's like he said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. So why should you listen to him? I mean, he places these radical demands on us. He demands our entire life. Why should you listen? Because he has supreme authority. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. And thankfully, he has the authority to continually forgive. And we do thank him for that. But this does mean that there can be no dark corners in your life that don't belong to him. These areas where you you just refuse to follow, you just refuse to obey, you live in disobedience, you're okay with it, you refuse to submit to his authority. That cannot be. We've seen today two contrasting responses to the supreme authority of Jesus. The crowds were amazed. The demon feared. And what you need to do is combine those two responses into one. You're amazed, but you're, you're fearful. And when you combine those two, it's going to lead to a third response, a right response. And that is to trust and obey. You trust him and you obey. Consider how you respond to the authority of Jesus. And I pray that you realize as the hymn goes, there's no other way but to trust and obey.
Father in heaven, we bow before you here again at the end of this time of the word. Praying for your, your grace in our lives, praying for your assistance to trust and to obey you. We see it. There is no excuse. We see in the word which is living and active the testimony, the authority of Jesus. Authority in word, authority in deed. It's, it's supreme. He has total authority over everything. That includes our lives. That includes every aspect of our lives, from our marriage to our kids, from our job to our hobbies. He is supreme overall, and he calls us to live for him. Are, are we doing that? I pray, Lord, we all leave spending time asking ourselves, do I submit entirely to what the Lord calls me to do with this life. This life, for those who believe, it's not ours anymore. It is his we follow. Where is he leading and am I following? Bring this conviction, Lord, and let it turn into some resolutions that we follow you more purely and passionately. And that if there are, if there are any dark corners in our lives, that you shine the light on them and, and take them out. We offer up our lives to you. Do with them as you please. What, what else can we do? What else can we say in response to this person, Jesus? But to trust him, he can be trusted. And to obey him, it's only for your glory and our good. And may that be our response as we leave here today. As in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.